so many of you here. We're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, I'll be reading from verses 1 to 10. Exodus 3, 1 to 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a land or to a good and broad land, a land flowing of, with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring out my people, the, ch the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I would like to uh, welcome our brother, Dr. Uh, Greg Broderick, to the pulpit this morning. So come on up and... God's providence. He brought him here to see our other brother, uh, Ethan File, to visit him, where uh, Dr. Broderick serves as the senior pastor at Grace Valley Christian Center in Davis, California. So I'll pray with him and look forward to hearing what he has to say. Dear Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for our brother, Lord. We uh, come before you now knowing that we are humble servants, unable to uh, do much on our own at all, Lord. So we come now and we rely upon your Holy Spirit, which you have blessed us with, to exposit your word, Lord. So I pray that you would bless my brothers. He does this this morning, and you would bless the uh, preaching of your word. All these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, and I thank you all for having me here this morning. It's a humbling thing to declare the word of God anywhere, but it seems extra humbling to declare it from somebody else's pulpit. So I appreciate the elders here for entrusting me uh, with preaching the word this morning and uh, cry, cry out to God that he will declare his word through me. So let's go to God now in prayer. Lord, we thank and praise you for this opportunity to come and to hear your word. And Lord, we are aware of our own inability when we stand to speak for you. But Lord, you are pleased to speak through flawed people. And so I pray, O oh God, that you will bring your word for your people this morning, that we may be built up, edified, and blessed, Lord. And may we hear this word, 
be encouraged by it, and then go to put it into practice for the glory of your name and your kingdom. And we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my title this morning is He Knows from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 10, which we just heard read. And by way of background, we remember that in his sovereignty, God sent his people out of the promised land and into Egypt and then left them there for more than 400 years. And it was not a pleasant time that they had down in Egypt. At first, it was pretty good. Joseph was in charge. They prospered in Goshen. But then that Joseph generation died out. And a new regime of pharaohs came in who neither knew nor cared about anything Joseph had done, Exodus 1, verses 8 through 10. And after that, the Egyptians treated these seemingly faultless Israelites very badly, enslaving them and oppressing them, Exodus 1, 11 through 12. Verse 13 tells us two times that God's people were treated ruthlessly. Their lives were bitter and full of forced labor, it says in verse 14. This is something that's outside of most of our experiences. It's harsher than we can imagine, but they were even told to kill their own sons in the river. It was a dystopian nightmare for these people, and it went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it can happen to us, too. It could happen to us on a societal level like them, or it could happen to us individually, perhaps a long-term illness or affliction that we suffer from or the grief over an apostate son or daughter, or a difficult job at work, or a marriage that's crumbling and seems to be falling apart, a season of spiritual dryness, deep longings that go unfulfilled, like for marriage or for a baby. And in this long suffering, in our difficulty, we can begin to ask, where is God? Does he know? Does he care about what's happening to me? And surely this kind of thing happened to God's chosen people in Egypt. Maybe they even gave up hope. It doesn't say that, but maybe they even gave up hope, put their heads down and grind it out. And we can do that too. We can begin to rely on our own strength. But let me tell you, it is a miserable way to live. But take heart, Israelites. Take heart, Christians. Take heart, even unbelievers. God knows. God sees. God hears God is concerned, and God is going to send someone to rescue you. Don't give up on God, for he promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, this difficulty happening to us is all part of his sovereign plan, which we remember from Scripture is a plan to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. A plan that works all things together for the good of his people, those he has loved and has called according to his purposes. So let's look at a number of points this morning from this text. Number one, he knows God is not ignorant of our problems. God is not ignorant of our sufferings. He knows. Now, to some extent, it's axiomatic to say that God knows. He knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46, verse 10. He knows every fact and he knows every possibility. He knows the very number of the hairs of our heads. 
He knows, it says in Psalm 139, our inmost being. He knows us better than we know us. To say that he knows is a rather obvious and unprofound statement. So if you were looking for profundity when you came here this morning, you will be disappointed. But there's a special sense in which God knows the troubles, the trials, the struggles, and the difficulties of his people. He knows as a loving father knows. Only he knows better than a loving father. It's a heart knowing. He knows of these difficulties. In fact, he intends these difficulties for us, for our good as our sovereign God. Just look at our Israelites down in Egypt. Their time of oppression and captivity was not a surprise to God, nor was it even some obstacle that had to be overcome on the way to God doing his good work. In fact, their time of captivity and their time of oppression was God's plan for them, his good plan for them. It was not a punishment for them for some sin that they committed, but rather something that God intended for their good. Way back in Genesis 15, God made his covenant with his man Abraham, promising the aged and childless man a son. And even then, at that time that he promised Abraham a son, hundreds of years before our events in our text this morning, even then, God had in mind to send them, the descendants of Abraham, into captivity. Listen to Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. It's not just that they're going to go for 400 years. It's not just that they'll be enslaved for 400 years. Go enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. God decreed that that should happen. Abraham, the man of faith, knew and believed these promises. And he passed them on to Isaac, and he passed them on to Jacob, and passed them on to Joseph as well. And we know Because at his death, Joseph repeated these promises, and he instructed the descendants of Abraham, those people who were were spoken about as a theory many hundreds of years before, now living in Egypt, he said to them, take up my bones from this place when God comes and leads you out of here. The point is that God knew way before, way before any of these things happened. He always knows. See, he was the author of of that plan for their good the plan for their enslavement, and the plan for their mistreatment. Well, as he knows or knew for them, he knows for each of us. Christian, you have cancer? God knows about your cancer. He permitted that cancer even for your good, Romans 8, 28. If you are long-suffering, if you're bitterly suffering, if you're oppressed by one circumstance or the other, if you're wondering, does God know, then take heart, he knows. He knows lovingly and sovereignly and in a fatherly way. And I would say even to the unbeliever, he knows you too. He knows that you are outside of Jesus Christ. He knows that you are destined on your current path for eternal hell, Matthew 25, 46. He knows that you too need a savior, the only savior, the unique God and man, Jesus Christ, who came to save such people from their sins. He knows your misery, unbeliever, your restlessness, your dissatisfaction with the things of this world, the emptiness, for as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. He knows. Point number two, he sees. 
See, God not only knows, but he sees. He is aware of our problems, actively aware of our suffering. His eye is on the problem as his eye is on the sparrow. In fact, the scriptures tell us uh, that his eyes range throughout the earth to strengthen his people, 2 Chronicles 6, 19. And he tells Moses here in Exodus 3, verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So this is not a mere seeing as some kind of uninvolved eyewitness. He sees means that he is paying attention. You are not alone, in other words, he's telling us. You are on my mind. Now, it's an analogy. God is not limited in the way that we are limited, but it's an active seeing. It's on his mind. He is saying to us, you are not alone. I see your suffering, and I am with you in your suffering. We cannot see the invisible God, but he sees us. It was true of his people in Egypt, and it is always true. You remember back several hundred years before, the godly man Joseph was in slavery in Egypt, suffering. He didn't do anything wrong, but he's in Egypt suffering as a slave. He's unjustly imprisoned, thrown into jail for for what? For nothing, for resisting sin. But he was not alone, whether in the well or whether in slavery or whether in prison. Exodus 39, verse 20, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. In other words, God saw him there. During the suffering, God was simply waiting for the right day and the right time to bring Joseph out with miraculous signs and wonders, as he would later do for Israel. God knows and God sees. He watches over his people, even, in fact, especially in trouble and trial and long-suffering. It's true throughout the whole Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's true in our time as well. God sees us in our troubles and our trials. He sees us in our sick beds and in our operating rooms. He sees us in our frustration and in our waiting and in our uncertainty. Sometimes the hardest trial can be the trial of uncertainty when we don't know what's coming. He sees us in misery. He sees us in malaise. He sees. He is not ignorant of our problems. He is not inattentive to us in our problems. Just like Joseph, he is simply waiting for the right time to do the maximum good. Maybe we're people who rely on our own strength. Well, God waits and waits and lets that desperation set in to allow our full dependence on him. The older I get, the earlier I try to go to dependence because you're just suffering longer for the same outcome. It took 47 years to learn that much. He is waiting, perhaps, for a Moses to be born and exiled and made ready to lead God's people out. He's waiting, perhaps, for the sin of the Amorites and others to reach its full measure. But he sees his people, and he is just waiting for the right time. And he sees the unbeliever, too, his elect and as-yet-uncalled man or woman, And he's waiting for the right time for the unbeliever too, the time when their ears can hear the word, when their eyes can see the truth, when he will regenerate that person and give them a new heart, a new heart to love him, a new mind to know him, and a new spirit to obey him and to glorify him. He is seeing all the time all his people. 
He is watching over them and he's paying attention to them. And at the right time, he will move. Just at the right time, he will move if you belong to him. As he did for the Israelites oppressed under Pharaoh. As he did at the midpoint of time when he sent his uncreated son, very God, from the beginning, the word made flesh. When he sent the Christ to become a man, to live in perfection, to fully keep the law for us and then to die the sacrificial death that we deserve, to die it in our place as our representative, to atone for our sin by taking the full blast of his infinite wrath onto Jesus Christ, even though it was us who deserved it. He waited for the right time, for the midpoint of time, and he did this for each of us in time. At just the right time, when we were yet sinners, when we were his enemies, Christ died for our sins. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. See, God sees us in our suffering. If the passage of time has gone on for a long time in your suffering, the answer is, it's not the right time yet. God will move in the right time, but he sees even now. Point number three, he hears. He knows and he sees, but he also hears. Exodus 3 Verse 7, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Now, it might seem a little funny. Why does it matter if God hears? He already knows. He already saw. So what does it matter? What could hearing possibly add to this equation? Well, it is not because he is lacking in information. He's omniscient, as I said, overall. He knows every fact and every possibility. So why does he hear us? He hears us because he loves us. He hears us because we need him to hear us. We need to be heard. Now, I am a father of daughters. I have lived in the household of all girls for 20 long years. (laughs) Pleasant, but long years. And sometimes, for reasons that surpass understanding, they need to be heard even if you already know the information that they will convey. So you sit quietly, you nod attentively, even though you already know the issue and you already know the solution. And why do you do it? You do it for them. You do it because they need it. You do it because you love them. Well, if that's true of a sinful father for a daughter, how much more true is it of our heavenly father who is perfect? God's ways are higher than our ways. So if we hear for the good of our spouses, for the good of our friends, for the good of our children, how much more will the Lord hear us for our good? We know that God hears our prayers. It's all over the scriptures. 1 John 5, 14. And certainly this crying out in Exodus 3 was their prayer to God. In fact, God not only hears our prayers, he hears them even before the prayer leaves our lips, Isaiah 65, 24. He hears our prayers even when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, Romans 8, 26. He hears even our basic prayers, Lord, help me, even when we don't know what to pray. See, he hears. It is a great mark of God's love for us that he hears our prayers and gives his attention to them. So you can hear that prayer right now. But it's a great mark of his love for us that he hears our prayers and pays attention to them. This should encourage us to pray and to keep on praying. 
Now, sometimes we may pray once and God acts, as in Daniel 9, 23. Or sometimes we pray a long time, as these Israelites seem to have done in Exodus 3, verse 7, but, and he waits to answer that prayer for the right time. But the point is, whenever we pray, he hears our prayer. It is true for believers, and it's even true for unbelievers. Although for them, there is only one prayer that he will hear. They are outside of Christ, so there's only one prayer he will hear. But fortunately, it's the best prayer that he will agree to hear. It's the one and the only thing needful. Have mercy on me, a sinner, is the prayer that he will hear from the unbeliever. See, we are told that God loves the world, John 3, 16. We are told, amazingly, 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires that all men should be saved. Now, most will reject it, but that doesn't mean God doesn't desire it. We are told in Romans 10, 13, that all who call on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. And if that's a condition of anybody hearing me today outside of Christ, if you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, then cry out. Cry out to God like the Israelites. Cry out, Hosanna. Cry out, God, save. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You don't, we don't have any right to pray to God, but he, in grace, will listen to that prayer, and he will save. He tells us in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved or you could be saved. You become eligible to do some things and be saved. You will be saved. God hears and answers our prayer. So he will hear. Whether you're born in the church or the mosque, whether you're born in a gutter or a palace, he will hear that prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Point number four, he cares. Exodus 3, verse 7. Yeah, he knows, he has seen, he has heard. And in a different translation of the Bible, the 84 NIV, it says, and I am concerned about their suffering. Praise the Lord, he is concerned. He is concerned for us. He has no problem. I have a lot of concerns about my problem. I have a lot of concerns about the problem of people under me. But God has no problem. God has no need. There's no outside force that acts upon God that compels him to care. He is concerned because he is concerned. He cares because he cares. He loves because he loves, Ephesians 2, verse 4. He loves because of his great love and rich mercy, because of his nature. God does not love us because of us, for we are all alike. The Bible tells us there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. Uh, in case we didn't believe that much, it tells us in Psalm 14:1, there is no one righteous, not even one. God has a way of cutting us down. We can begin to think we are righteous or we are the exception to the rule, but it's not true. We are all alike sinners. We are no better than the quote-unquote sinners that we like to compare ourselves to. In fact, if we look at our history, we know we did the same. We walked in the same sins as they walked. The difference between us and them is nothing to do with us. It is to do with grace, God's grace, God's sovereign and electing grace. A monergistic, one-sided act in which we spiritually dead are suddenly made alive in Jesus Christ. 
you think about the person who was dead and made alive, you don't congratulate the dead guy that was made alive. You give the credit to the person who made him alive. Think of Lazarus. No one says, good job, Lazarus, you were dead and made alive. No, Jesus raised him from the dead. Well, we're no different than Lazarus, except spiritually dead is a bigger problem. Spiritually dead is deader than dead. But it's his love that causes him to do this, apart from uh, a part of his nature, entirely internally motivated. His love is the, is the motivation for his concern. See, he has nothing to gain from us. He had nothing to gain from a bunch of oppressed slaves in Egypt. And we're not any better than any of them. And yet, he is concerned. This concern is what underlies his knowing, his seeing, and his hearing. He is concerned, he cares, and he will do something about it. He was concerned for his people Israel. He is concerned for his people today both eternally and in our practical daily lives. He knows the things that we need, and he is concerned about them. Food and clothing, what what must be comparatively trivial matters, he knows and cares about these things. As I said before, he knows us better than we know us. Well, he cares for us even more than we care for ourselves. When we are suffering, what is our main prayer? Make it stop. That's our main prayer. Take it away. Okay, I've been in the valley of the shadow of death. Now I would like to go through and come out on the other side. But God cares even too much for us to just stop the suffering. He lets it do its good work. And because he loves us, because he is concerned about us, he will not end the suffering a moment before it has completed its good work, nor will he let it last a moment longer once it has completed its good work. So if you're struggling through intense trouble or long-suffering, remember this, God is concerned about me. And that's even true for the unbeliever. See, he cares for the unbeliever. He's concerned about the unbeliever too because he knows, he knows better than we know what awaits the person who is outside of Jesus Christ. Condemnation. He knows that you are justly condemned outside of Christ, John 3, 18. He knows that eternal hell is what awaits all who reject his great offer of salvation. And he doesn't want it for you. Remember, I read it before, 1 Timothy 2.14. He desires that all men should come to saving faith. So he doesn't want that for you. He's glorified by, by his judgment. He's glorified in his justice by the judgment in hell. But it seems that he prefers to be glorified by his mercy in saving. So as both to be just and the one who justifies pouring out the wrath that you and that I deserved onto Jesus Christ in our place. So if you're outside of Christ this morning, I would say God is concerned about you. Receive his concern. Receive his offer of free grace. Receive his gospel salvation by faith. Faith in the God that cares about you, even if you don't care about him. And as I said before, you you may ask yourself, why would God care about me? And the answer is because God cares about me. That's all. And by the way, who cares why? You're getting a good deal. Take the good deal. (laughs) Don't worry about why you got the good deal. He cares because he cares, because it is part of his nature, because he is holiness and he is wrath and he is justice, but he is also equally love and mercy. 
receive his mercy and concern, and then give him all the glory and all the praise. Next point, he rescues. And finally, we get to the action. Verse 7 says, he knows, he sees, he hears, he cares, etc. But see, after all that, you're still slaves in Egypt. So there is God knowing, there is God seeing, there is God hearing, there is God being concerned, but nothing has happened to you yet. You are still a slave. You are still bitter, ruthlessly treated, sorely oppressed. It is difficult, so it's not much improvement. But of course, all that knowing, seeing, caring has a purpose. It issues in action. It is not that God is merely has sympathy for us, though he certainly does have sympathy for us. But that's not all he has for us. Exodus 3, verse 8. So I have come to rescue them and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. See, God always rescues his people. He rescued them from Egypt. And he rescued each of us who are in Christ. He rescued us from our sin too. He saw us in our doomed state of slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to devil, slavery to flesh. He saw us. He saw us floating down the stream to destruction. But he said what? I have come to rescue you. And he came. He came as a man, second person of the Trinity. And he rescued us by his perfect life by his atoning sacrifice on the cross, by his substitutionary death in our behalf. He came, there's a whole purpose of why Jesus came, to rescue us. His name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And he did it at the cross as a one-time act, but he, he applied it to each of us in time, those of us who are in Christ. And how did he rescue us? How did he rescue us individually? took the big act on the cross, but how did he apply that to us? How did he rescue us individually? Same then as he does now, by sending someone. Exodus 3.10, God speaking to Moses, Go now, I am sending you to bring my people out. Then he led them out of Egypt. But for each of us, he sent someone to us with the gospel to lead us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son, our only Savior, Jesus the Christ. It is a glorious salvation and a glorious rescue. To Israel, he sent Moses, his man, to lead them out. To you and to me, he sends someone to share the gospel with us. And then he sends us pastors and elders and overseers to teach us the word of God, to teach it more accurately to us so that we may live for him. And as he sends them, he goes with them. For as he told the rather nervous Moses, I will be with you, I am has sent you. We send someone to us, but he comes with them. As that person shares the gospel with us, God the Holy Spirit works in our heart to change us, to know him, to love him, and to cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. But then you're not done. You have a job to do. See, he sent someone to you, and now he sends you to someone else. So go. You are sent by God. Go, speak, see what he will do, rescuing some other person from one who is mightier than Pharaoh, from a slavery that's worse than the slavery in Egypt. Our great enemy and accuser, Satan, 
And you may look at Satan and say, that's a pretty big job, but God will go with you as you go to share the gospel. An unbeliever, how does this apply to you? Does this even apply to you? I say, surely it applies to you more than it applies to anyone else. See, he sent me to you. If you can hear me preaching this this morning, then God sent me to you to tell you about this gospel, to tell you that you are justly condemned. That's the bad news. But to tell you that you can be justly saved by one method and one alone. This is the good news for all people. Trusting in the person and work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. If you are an unbeliever, call on the name of the Lord and be rescued from your oppression, from your misery, from your bitter life under the hard slavery of master sin. You can be saved today. You are a slave to sin, but he offers to rescue you by faith. Don't reject the offer. If you're in slavery and someone comes to free you, you go with that person. And what a glorious rescue God provides for his people. Look at what he did for the Israelites. He didn't simply end their slavery and oppression, but rather he gives them the best. He gives them their own good land. And not just some land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He rescues them from, but he also rescues them to, and he rescues them to the best. Well, you can see where I'm going with this. It's true for each one of us also. He rescued us from the miserable slavery to sin and to Satan and to a new and glorious slavery to God, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. He restored us to relationship with himself as our Abba, Father. He restored us to be his people, his treasured possession, treasured by God. It's an amazing thing. Sons and daughters, redeemed people, his glorious and joyful doulos means bond slave. He rescues us to the best life, the gospel life, the closest version of the garden life we can have now until he brings us to himself. See, the best of this rescue, we're rescued if we're in Christ, but the best of this rescue is yet to come. See, at the renewal of all things, when the last one of his people is saved, the last of his elect, when the trumpet sounds, the dead shall be raised, and we shall be translated to him. A new heaven and a new earth will come down, and we will behold and worship the Lamb on his throne, and we will cry glory, we will cry worthy, and he will reign forever and ever. We are rescued into a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Better than a land flowing with milk and honey is joy unspeakable, full of glory. See, for each of God's people, our destiny is glory with God. But just like those Israelites, it's a process. Um, or better, better yet, it's received in installments. See, we've already been rescued from, let out of the kingdom of Satan. That's only the first installment. We are yet to be fully led in to where God is going to lead us. But it is coming. And is guaranteed. See, just as surely as those Israelites made it to that promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, just as surely as they made it to that land, we will make it to God's eternal home for us. We may need to go through trouble. We may need to go through a time in the desert. 
We will even sin and suffer. We may have to survive on just manna for a season. We may be full of fear and worry and doubt and wonder at God's work in our time, just as they were. But as surely, in fact, more surely than God delivered them into the promised land of rest, he is delivering us into the eternal rest. And he will deliver us into that promised eternal rest, into eternal glory, into eternal pleasures at his right hand. And I want to close with a few points of application. The first point is remember. Remember that God knows, that God sees, that God hears your cries, that God is concerned, that God is going to rescue you, and that he sends someone and he will deliver you. Remember those things. You don't need to remember those things. You don't need as much to remember those things when you're flying high when everything is going in your direction. You should still remember them in that time where the great crash will come. But hold on especially tight to those promises when you are in suffering, when you are in difficulty, when you are in uncertainty. Remember. And if you're outside of Christ, remember that he cares about you unto salvation. And he sends people to you with his gospel. So remember, but then receive his gracious rescue. Don't leave it there. It's wonderful to hear God is sending someone to rescue you. But if you don't leave Egypt, if you won't go with him, then that rescue doesn't do you any good. Don't turn down God's rescue. Next, I say to the suffering saint, he will rescue you by delivering you from your trial. Only hold on to what you have. Your trial will not last forever. God did not forget about you in your suffering, whatever it is. He still sees, he still hears, he still cares. Now, how he's going to rescue you, I don't know. He may rescue you by delivering you from that trial, by solving your problem. Or he may rescue you by delivering you to glory through the vehicle of death. But you're rescued either way. Don't think that you'll be stuck in that problem forever. God is going to come and deliver you to something better here or hereafter. And to the believer, I say we are rescued and looking forward to a glorious glory, so glorious that we will spend eternity trying to articulate it, but we will fail. We will praise him in glory forever because we can't ever describe the fullness of it. And there are those there now who are already doing so, and they have been trying for months or for years or for decades, or century, or millennia, or ages, to fully and finally praise him and declare his glory, but they have not yet achieved it. See, Joseph, I spoke about, has been dead for thousands of years. He's, he's declaring the glories of God, but his time has not yet run out. Well, we're going to go, and we're going to declare the glories of God forever and ever, and we'll never run out of glories to declare. There is still some praise left for us to give. And we will not ever exhaust it. So let us remember that it is God we are speaking about. It is God we are trusting in. It is God who speaks truth and who does truth and who is truth. He is utterly reliable. He says that he sees. So if you doubt whether God sees you, you say, God says he sees me. He says that he hears. He says he is concerned and cares about you. He says he will rescue us and deliver us from all our trouble. 
So let us trust in his trustworthy words and look forward to rejoicing in their completion in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. And we are humbled, greatly humbled, Lord, that you know us, that you see us, that you hear us, that you are concerned about us, and that you rescue us. Oh God, we give you all praise and all glory. We cry, hallelujah, hosanna, Lord. Use us for your good work. You sent Moses to lead them out. You sent someone to lead us out of our sin. Send us to lead someone from sin and to Jesus Christ, that they may declare your praise and glory, that your kingdom may be extended, and that you may receive all praise. I thank you and ask you to bless us, your people, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.